When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan. It's a horse blanket, Moriarty. Dagan, thank you (laughs) for joining me today. I've been saying that so much that I think I've I've been driving Micah insane, and she's never seen the Patriot show. She has... (laughs) No what? idea what I'm talking about. Wait, no. oh my God! You have to sit her down. I believe it's still on. You, I think Netflix has it right now. Yeah, I think that's where we saw it when we did right? the uh, knockback episode. I think it's still. I think it's still up there. Very well. It's a nice horse blanket. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of the top ten movie quotes in my head constantly. It's all. It's an awesome. Yeah, she. I think. I think. I think she's handing me like a towel or something. I was like, it's a horse blanket. <laughs> I wanted to start with "fuck you, asshole," <laughs> but that just got totally. How many derailed. takes do you think it got? Got they had to do before they got that take out, oh, of, I, uh, out of Arnold? Can only imagine one or a hundred. There's no in between. Dude, that he was going to play Reese is the funniest thing in the world. Oh to my me, but, god! Uh, we'll, we'll talk about all that when we get to the topic at hand. Of course, <laughs> this is Knockback, our retro and nostalgia podcast. Thank you for joining us. We do it each and every week. My brother and I here, and uh, it goes up. A week early and ad free on Patreon, patreon.com slash media. You can also watch the show if you want. Some of you like to watch it on YouTube. Some of you like to watch. No well, doubt. And, uh, you know, others listen on audio feeds. That's totally fine. Of course, Patreon supports RSS and we're on Discord as well. So come join us there. Uh, a little secret Easter egg is that if you're on Discord, you have um, access to our merch beta. And uh, we because we're just what? testing everything out right now because we're selling merch internally and we turned it on yesterday and then we got like 125 orders. <laughs> wow. In one day. So, yeah. So Mike is like, you know, Mike is like an, you know, like an Oliver twist, like the kids that are, you know, they're like eight years old and they're working in the in the factories for like 18 hours. That's Micah right now getting all the packages together. That's what she deserves for not watching mm-hmm. the Patriot. I agree. Until that little time, little- then we could maybe remedy the situation child labor six day weeks 12 hour days let's do it <laughs> all right my friend well it's good to see you dig what's on your mind let's stretch our legs a little bit before we get into the topic which is of course the terminator but how's life what do you want to talk about this week you know what my sappy ass has been thinking about all week right kind of waxing nostalgic dig and you being nostalgic a little sentimental but i think it comes with the territory now that the kids are getting a little older, mm. right? Your niece and nephew, Graydon's 11 going on 12. Lily is 15. So going I on think... 25. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Going on 35. <laughs> but it's true. But, you know, I think it's a natural for a parent, right? As the kids get older, all the baby stuff, all the young little kid stuff is kind of getting left behind now as the kids get older and more sophisticated they're physically getting taller right that's a constant reminder how big they're actually getting and it's like i think it has a parent sort of pining for the old times when it was different they were physically much tinier and and more innocent and all that kind of stuff 
So lately I've just been thinking about, you know, I've been really kind of going off on these meanderings and these imaginings of having them as little kids and what it was like on the beach when they were young. We just got back from the beach and it's so different with them now. You know, they would they read a book, they go take a walk by themselves, go get ice cream or whatever. It's so different. You're not chasing them around. So I think that was a reminder. And the whole thing kind of dovetailed with, oddly, with my new sort of health regimen of getting rest, walking, the diet eating a breakfast. So my breakfast, I eat a bowl of Cheerios with bananas every morning. That's my thing. That's my go-to. And I'm very proud of myself because I actually eat breakfast now, right? A bowl of Cheerios with banana. With bananas. (laughs) And now notice I didn't say enjoying. I'm tolerating my bowl of Cheerios with bananas, right? Sure. So, no sugar, uh, like the old days. Remember, you used no to sugar. sugar Can't and just do the like, sugar just, anymore. Yeah, of course. Yeah, right. It's a guy that was like, heinous. That was heinous. I don't know what the hell uh, that was all. I about mean, in, Cheerios in are, fr- are pretty friggin' disgusting, but it's kind of my go-to. You'd be surprised, sure. man. Not to even to get off on this tangent. Go down the cereal aisle in the supermarket. Even the quote-unquote healthy cereals are so high in carbs and sugar and added sugars. So Cheerios has got to be like the go-to if you're watching the blood sugar and stuff. So. Eat my bowl of Cheerios. And now it's I'm, I'm at that point as a dad where everything sort of reminds me of the kids when they're young. But the Cheerios dredged up this really funny memory that I had. And I had forgotten all about this. So we used to take the kids when they're little out to our typical haunts for lunch or dinner in the neighborhood down at the Jersey Shore, whatever. So we used to frequent this one restaurant still around, still go once in a while, not a chain restaurant like a Friday's type of thing, but also not like a four-star Michelin-rated restaurant. Somewhere in the in between uh, sure. on the fancy scale, right? And my kids were used to going out to eat and stuff like that. So usually you go into the restaurant, usually for dinner around here, and you have your grab bag of things to keep the kids occupied, keep them pacified, and keep them quiet, right? So crayons, certain toys for the high chair, and usually the go-to like plastic Tupperware cup of Cheerios to kind of keep them occupied, but also keep them satisfied until dinner arrives or whatever type of thing. So Graydon always had his cup of Cheerios. So we're in the restaurant one night, and he's particularly ornery and cranky. He's in the high chair, must have been all of a year and a half old. And he's taking the Cheerios and he's chucking them. At the in the restaurant, right? And again, sort of a medium fancy restaurant. This definitely wouldn't be tolerated in this type of restaurant type of thing. And you never know who's around you and who's gonna get pissed and who's gonna be more tolerant. And so he's he's chucking Cheerios and Lily is what, all of five at that point, four or five. She's egging him on by laughing. They're having a great time. He's winging Cheerios throughout the restaurant, whatever. And I'm mortified. You know, you're a young parent, not that experienced yet. Now I'd be much more laid back. If we had a third kid, you know, it's like you just kind of go with the flow. Let it run off your shoulders. Yeah, but- also also called Colin Moriarty when mom and dad had uh, me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because you learn. You know, right. I remember when Lilia was that age and we were going through it for the first time, you're mortified. You know, you want to kind of keep her quiet. You don't want the other patrons to get pissed off, all this kind of stuff. So we're kind of beside ourselves trying to calm him down. And really, we don't know even know where the Cheerios are going, you know. So push comes to shove later on. We turn around. The gentleman in the adjacent table, there's like a five top, a round table with five people. There's a pile of Cheerios next to his salad bowl 
This man was taking the Cheerios. Graydon was throwing Cheerios in this guy's salad, and he was just patiently, without saying anything, taking them out. I mean, he had a pile, a mound of Cheerios next to his salad. And I remember, you know what it was? We By the time we had turned around, I think they had left. The other table had left, but the stuff wasn't cleared. You know, the waitress hadn't come and cleared their table. So we saw that this guy was actually just taking the Cheerios out of his food and putting them next to his plate very patiently. And I just remember that memory as being so hilarious because, and actually one of those times where it's like, wow, I want to have that sort of patience with complete strangers and kindness, right? Because this guy could have said anything. He could have cursed us out. He could have said, control your kid, whatever type of thing. But he handled it patiently. But that was the other thing. It was like one of those one of those experiences for Graydon where he was just really, he was generally a pretty good kid, but he was just acting out that night and to the tune of destroying this guy's blackened salmon salad or whatever the hell he had over there. So that was a funny, but I'm in that state where it's like every mm. single thing is kind of drumming up some sort of memory of the kids being little. And I think, you know, lately I'm just, I'm just that Mid- sappy sentimental It's a midlife dude. crisis. Is that not, is that not a midlife crisis in some way? I, think, Isn't that what, I, think I just that what- feel midlife crisis has been happening in 2022, maybe kind of coming over even from 2021. I just feel like in so many ways, like I'm not pining for the Porsche any, you know, any more than I, I love Porsches anyway. I mean, I take a Porsche, but yeah, I feel the midlife crisis thing kind of gets its tendrils in from all directions. At, at my age, you know, late 40s, this is when it's going to happen, right? I assume so. I mean, I've been going through my midlife crisis since I was 14. <laughs> I'm still going through it today. <laughs> so you're but, still uh, too young. I used to think it was yeah. 50s. Yeah. But to be but honest with you, and not to scare you, not to frighten yeah. you, but it is it is 40s. No, I think it is the 40s. Yeah. I, am, but I, I never knew that. I've started thinking I'm 37 now. So I started thinking, I'm like, wow, it's uh, I'm getting up there when I really think about it. I can't believe it. And where ages are indistinguishable from each other. Ages no longer mean anything. It's like, oh, 37. I don't know what that even <laughs> is supposed to mean. You know, 16 meant something. 12. Right. 21, 25. I don't know. I just feel a, a yeah, long 37 because you could kind of compare college wasn't that long ago. So it seems like a. Seems like a big push from that time. But yeah, I could tell you 37 is not. It's my high school. Did I tell you that it's my high, my high school reunion? My 20th oh, reunion. Oh, right. This, this would be. I think imminently. This is 20? Yes. Yeah, yeah. 20. And I, I, I wasn't invited. I, I didn't get any correspondence from it. Now, there's no? two things. That, there's one thing. So my friend Chris, who was yeah. a buddy of mine, he was a, he's a Marine. But he's like somehow involved with the the uh, alumni or whatever. And he, he reached out to me a couple of years ago just to get my contact info. Okay. And I don't know like what, where it went from there. And then, but I have a theory that I have, you know, I have an ex-girlfriend who I have no problems with at all, but I feel like she's friendly with a lot of those people. So maybe, you know, they don't, they didn't want to chance me going and, and arriving and having any, maybe some sort of awkwardness. I don't know if that's the case, but no way. No, but I don't ca- I don't care because I wouldn't have gone anyway. It's uh, the oh. last thing I want to be. The, the last place I want to be is at Bellport High School's class of 2002 class. Reunion, You're not no even offense. the slightest bit curious. No, everyone that I care about truly from that that class, I keep in touch with in some. OK, right. All right. You know, the Mike Popes, the Corey Monaco's like those kind of people like I Cody, like I I don't need to see these random people. Half of them fucking were mean to me, you know, <laughs> I wonder over the last 15 years, whatever it is, dozen years, how much Facebook 
has sort of assuaged that curiosity, right? Oh, How much has kind of sa- satiated that thing where it's like, I could just see if I really want to know 85% of my graduating classes probably on Facebook. I could check them out, their status, where they live, their family, their employment situation, friends, what hobbies, whatever, right? Oh, I wonder how much that, yeah. you know, back in the day, in the 80s, 90s or whatever, you were genuinely curious, right? Like, oh, I, I, you could genuinely lose touch with people authentically, where now that's almost impossible if you give it even the most minimal effort. Now, now it's impossible to lose touch with people, which is, you know, I'm trying to lose touch with <laughs> that's people. That's true. You know? it's, it's flipped. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, can we lose touch? You and me. Can we, do, <laughs> can we make this happen? <laughs> yeah, like, let's lose touch. All right. So what I've been thinking about, Dig, is um, on a more serious note is our new game, our fifth game, oh. Super Perils of Baking, is now out by the time people hear this. And what? I am excited. It's a really, I think, a wonderful game and ode to... Super Mario World, 55 levels, New Game Plus, collectibles and secrets in every level and a storybook kind of tale that I wrote all in verse, which I'm interested in what people think. So cool. With a cool little message and you might want to beat it on New Game Plus with 100% to see the real ending. What? But but uh, I'm reminded. So this is the third time I've written a game. And so I'm I'm intrigued by what the critics have to say. And every time I just get annoyed. When I read, because even if the Twin Breaker was like a, was my first one and that was hard to read that stuff, because I think we got like a Metacritic score in the 60s, which I think is ridiculous. But that's ridiculous. people were pretty hard on the story and all that. So with the second game, I was like, all right, let's make it with Herboxia, too. I was like, let's try to make a a more streamlined old school arcade game. I'll, I'll minimize the story. The story will be kind of intuited with like the creature names and yeah. the bestiary and all that. Then we got the reviews and people were like, where's the story? So I was like. <laughs> I'm going to fucking kill myself. So then we pa- so then we patched the game with a bunch of new story. Like most of the Herboxia 2 story was written in a patch because I was like, OK, I guess you want that. So then with this game, I just basically wrote I wrote verses for every stage. So 55 verses. There's an intro and some dialogue and, and, and two endings. That's amazing. And um, and it's a lot. It's basically a children's story, like a children's book. And, yeah. And uh I read what I just copy and pasted one of the uh, plus minuses from someone's review into our discord because I was like, I'm going to kill myself because, again, one of the minuses was like scant story or something like that. And I'm like, dude, I, so but the point is, is that it's all subjective. And I'm reminded when I read that stuff of all of the people that had to read what I had to say about their games. And it's so interesting. It will always mm. be interesting for me ever forward from this point, from the first game, the second game, the third game on and on of um the shoe being on the other foot. It's just like, okay, now I have to read people that don't understand my intent or even people that don't like their, the reviews are really good, but like people being like, I wish I could remap the buttons. And I'm like, you can remap the buttons, <laughs> you know, stuff like, <laughs> so I, I, I wanted to ask you, yeah. How do you deal with criticism when you, when your stuff goes in the wild, do you engage with it at all on your animation and you know, on your cartoons and your movies and, and TV shows? Or do you, tend to stay away from it because part of me wants it and part of me like oh with Herboxia 2 specifically I'm like I can't read any more of this like it's yeah that's I'm getting too annoyed because like people are not getting it or you know or the this but that's why it's so important to let people play the games too because like things you take for granted are never true it seems like so the same with Twin Breaker like we thought Twin Breaker was so easy and when people started playing it they're like this is impossible I'm like (laughs) what are you talking about so 
anyway, I'm going on and on. I was just curious. Well, how do you deal with criticism, like the, the external critic criticism? See, my heart goes out to you because I think working in video games, you're more prone to the criticism. Right. Especially with the YouTube culture, everything IGN sort of initiated and then so on and so forth with all the various outlets and stuff. I don't really engage. You know, I've worked mostly in television animation and I've worked mostly in preschool on preschool content. So there tends to be less criticism, not that there's no criticism, but there tends to be less criticism just kind of in that avenue. What, you know, as opposed to me working on a series for older kids or the DuckTales reboot or whatever it is, right? So but even even stuff like SpongeBob, which is for slightly older children and has a slightly, well, not slightly, I mean, th- those are really under the microscope. Big things, huge things. So I don't really engage with criticism that much. I guess I kind of feel lucky for that. But the thing that strikes me about what you're saying is I remember you as a video game journalist and as a video game critic and all of that. And one thing I could say about you just knowing you and know, of course, knowing your work is that you wouldn't purposely be critical or obtuse just to say something negative. Like you would give an honest to goodness, genuine review, whether you liked it, whether you didn't like it, back it up with facts and reasons and all that kind of stuff. The other aggravating thing is saying something like, I wish I could remap the buttons, but you can do that. Right. Just shows kind of a lack of effort or research or, you know, those people obviously didn't go as far as they could before they vocalize their stuff to the larger community to pe- to to the public right so that's got to be super frustrating but also you know i also think just as an artist you know you as a writer as an artist as a video game creator as a creative in general i think and you know this already you have to develop a sort of a leather skin you really Definitely. do because it it is all a lot of it I would say 90% of it is whether that critic really gets your intent, really gets what you're doing and all that kind of stuff. And the way you're saying like, all right, well, did this video game has all this story? Then they criticize the story. Then you do a video game and sort of treat it in an old school way where it's uh, less substance and just more fun. And then they criticize that. Where's the story? It's like almost like people being just kind of looking for, and weeding out those reasons to be critical. And I think that just smacks of being, you know, that just, I think that lets people know that you're a rookie. You know what I mean? It seems like a kind of a rookie way to do things. It seems like it's unprofessional. So that's, for me, it's like I could go on YouTube and see like, oh, I worked on this cartoon series for Cartoon Network and people say good or th- bad things about it. Or, you know, this animation was super fluid or you know, why didn't you do this? Or, you know, this could have been a lot better. But, you know, the other thing, too, that I wonder if critics recognize is that these projects, whether it's a game, a cartoon series for television, an animated feature film, a AAA title, right? These are all done. They These all have to be, the cloth has to be cut to time and budget. There's a time, there's a time frame and a budget and a monetary budget for everything. And that's the other thing I wonder if people think about. Like, you're not doing this in a vacuum. You're doing this project with a certain amount of money, with a certain amount of people that you could pay. And within a certain time frame, you have to deliver this thing. It has to, it can't exist uh, behind closed doors forever. You have to shovel it out into the marketplace. 
So I wonder how much of, of that is thought about too, where it's like how, you know, it's like comparing apples to oranges, you know? And, um, so that's, that's interesting. And, uh, yeah, my heart, my heart definitely goes out because I think, and this is your company too. It's not like I'm working for Nickelodeon or I'm working for Disney at the time or whatever. This is your, this is your shingle hanging on the door too. So I think that probably adds a little more, right? That adds a little more juice, makes definitely. it a little more personal. Uh, yeah. I feel very protective of Barry, especially because I'm very much the front facing person with us. And sure, uh, that makes you know, sense. I, I'm really only responsible for the last like 5%, like maybe the first 5% and the last 5%, like the story and then the marketing and like PR for it at the end, not even the PR really, but just the marketing like d- definitely rolls through me and our shows. And I think we're very lucky to have like a built in audience, like a captive audience that will play or look at anything we do, which is awesome. And I'm really honored by that. It's funny looking back at my critic, my my uh, career as a critic, because you learn more and more about games. And the more you learn about them, the, the more you're surprised that you got through some of your career not knowing very much, because I didn't know anything about games compared to what I know about them now, 10 or 15 years ago. And even five years ago, before I started making games, it's so much harder than it looks. It really is. And my part is easy. I was literally writing a children's book. I was writing rhymes. I was just making things rhyme and and writing a little parable. Like imagine putting it all together. Like these guys really did slave over it. And it's funny because Super Perils began as a free patch and it just absolutely got out of control. (laughs) Like, you know, a year late, basically, because we just made it an entirely new game. And I was telling the audience, it's not like I'm enriching myself on this. My goal is to hopefully enrich myself on a game one day. But we're taking the money and just dumping it right into the next game. Like the, right. it's all about the next game. Like we're trying to just get to the next game. And I love I think that model. I love and it. I think that's every indie studio's like only desire is to just get to the next game. Like if you can just get to the next game, sustain, and, get to the next right. game. And you know what? Now, there's a tech, quality. Yeah. That's a quality driven model. And we want to pay everyone fairly. We're trying to bring more people in and get different voices and ideas and uh so i think the future for us will be like we have one game that's kind of sort of getting close to done but we've been working on it in the background and i've barely done anything with it myself um i think we'll get that game out in between now and when we do the role-playing game which is in full production i cannot wait for people to see this game dude it's so exciting it's fucking awesome like the way it looks awesome it's gonna be awesome the story is awesome if i don't mind saying so i love the story i love it and uh yeah so we're gonna get and dagan's gonna write a side quest we're actually gonna have a few people doing guest side quests in the game which is cool so fun so we want to i want to have like some guest writers i'm glad to know it's looking amazing i don't think i've seen anything yet yeah i've only sent you like some screens back in the day i can send it to you running i mean guys if you like snes era role-playing games like squaresoft stuff i think you're gonna like what we're doing super exciting dude very much and it's true to form it's no tricks you know, it's not like a 2.5D or anything like that. Or it's in Game Maker and these with old fucking grid art and all this kind of crazy. It's cool. Man. So I think you guys cool, are gonna dig dude. It. Well, thank you all out there for your love, kindness and support of that endeavor. I know I can always rely on you and I appreciate it. OK. <laughs> <laughs> and I can always rely on you guys for fucking headaches, too. So thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> I love being fake adversarial with the audience. It's like one of my favorite things. Yeah, that's right. what you do. That's cool. Yeah, it's fun. The Terminator, 1984. I think I added this to the list 
we have a you know Dagan and I kind of ping pong back and forth and he comes up with ideas and I come up with ideas and we have obviously over on Patreon you can vote on ideas we have one idea coming from Patreon every month we have a backlog of them now because they're video games you guys are fucking killing us um, with the video <laughs> games so we have it's uh, fun but you're it, killing it, us yeah it's like Metal Gear Solid 4 Red Dead Redemption you know stuff like that so we have we have quite oh the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time Ocarina. which I think we're gonna go to first yeah so I think we'll get to that one I'm first deep in to that yeah I'm excited I'm gonna play it on switch so, so fun so fun so I, I put this on there because I was like we need a little bit of a breakup I think we need a I want to say a lighter topic I think this is actually a pretty deep topic but something short we're doing Game of Thrones I mean we've been just immersed in that so something fun and the Terminator is a movie that reminds me of my childhood. I feel like this was one of the movies that came out before, actually came out weeks after I was born, if I remember correctly. I was like, yeah. but an infant suckling on the, I don't like saying, it. I'm not even going to finish the sentence. <laughs> and uh, October 1984, and it was, it's it, 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 so, I wasn't there at the time. I want to know what it was like at the time, but I remember this movie, you know, especially at our neighbors and our house with the various movie channels. Like, this was a movie that was a staple. Like, you saw different parts of this movie. I saw different parts of this movie so many times and uh, have so many memories of the different parts of the movie. And it's, I know a lot of people compare it to Alien and the jumps mm. to Aliens mm-hmm. and how those movies are both awesome, but they're different. And I know people think, the same thing about Terminator to Terminator 2 and how different the movies are. And they, they are wildly different. This is, a, this is a really wonderful movie. I really dig this movie a lot. And I don't know that I've seen it as an adult in one piece. So it was cool to go back and experience it and experience these characters, but also experience Los Angeles as a character and all the rest. Really enjoyed it. So, Dave, talk to me about the Terminator. I'm curious what you think of the movie, but I'm also curious what you remember about it because you were... 11 so i feel like yeah this movie's kind of for maybe kids a little you know it's not for kids it's an adult movie but kid, if i were 11 it was 11 years old i would have been all over this thing you know so what did you rem- what do you remember about the terminator coming out and how do you feel about the film i was excited to see this pop up on your list but i have to be honest much like i think about lethal weapon 2 for instance right it's like okay we got to do lethal weapon eventually just so we could have that bridge and that vehicle to get to my beloved lethal weapon 2 right T2, Terminator 2, iconic, early 90s movie, amazing movie. Can't wait to get there. But I was thinking about that. That was kind of my first thought when I saw your list and I saw Terminator pop up. I was like, all right, that's going to be the bridge so we could talk about T2 and it'll be a fun conversation. But really, the the point there is to get to Terminator 2 in 1991. Dude, I went back and revisited this movie, watched it twice for the episode and just we totally remembered how amazing this movie is. It's not just about T2 and the Terminator franchise, man. This movie is so great. I really enjoyed it. Talk about sci-fi horror. And I really wanted to kind of recall my earliest touch tones with the, with the movie. And I don't remember it being on my radar in 1984, in the fall of 1984, going into the winter. I was 10 going on 11, right? You were just born. I was busy with my Transformers or whatever I was into in 1984. I love the year 1984. It's like one of my favorite, one of my favorite years. But I had, to my best recollection, it must have been the next year in 85, possibly even into 86. I don't think so. Where I saw it either on VHS on a rental or on cable, you know, on Showtime or something. And I remember being terrified by it. And it was the first time I saw... A sci-fi horror thing. Now, the thing, Alien, 
other early late 70s early 80s sci-fi horror would soon be on my radar but i think this was my first experience with a sort of sci-fi horror thing and i remember physically watching it in our old house in medford in that wood paneled den everything was like brown and green very 70s early 80s and i'm sitting there sitting on the floor watching on the old analog tv we didn't even have a remote i think our our vcr at the time probably had a really big primitive remote or something but the tv didn't have a remote we would stand up and turn the dial and i remember physically turning around to the kitchen that mom and dad are probably having a cigarette or having a drink or whatever and being like i'm allowed you know like i'm allowed to watch this is all right type of thing like you know what i mean and uh being like pretty scared by it you know and i I remember kind of probably thinking whether i was looking at the vhs box at the video store or whatever you know we had no star trek was on our radar whether it was the early films or the tv show of course star we had all of star wars the whole trilogy by that point so those were our those that was our sci-fi experience so i'm thinking sci-fi robots 3po death star droid r5d4 r2 whatever so this was kind of like the first scary robot that i had seen i can't remember an earlier one and that was something for me that was like i remember sitting down to watch and be like oh this is gonna be a fun sci-fi thing like star wars and it was a much more horrific polter like poltergeist like experience for me where i think i only watched it the one time i liked it but i was definitely scared by it and you know at that early age of probably 11 so it was really cool to go back and kind of see that and experience it that way again that this movie feels a lot like a friday the 13th or like a halloween an early carpenter halloween film and i kind of love that you know it's very suspenseful fraught with tension the entire thing is a chase and you know, I love just thinking about we won't get into T2 now. Of course, that's a future episode, probably not too far into the future. But I love the pardon contrast the between. <laughs> I love the contrast between the two movies, yeah. you know, but, Certainly. you know, you get early Arnold. This is bodybuilder Arnold, you know, coming off that Mr. Universe, like one of the most sought after bodybuilders on the planet before he was an action star, before he was a movie star. Yeah, this you know, was like just Conan, coming right? off Conan. Right? right. Yeah. In 82. And um, just just really loved it. Just so much about the main players and even the secondary players and just the atmosphere and early James Cameron. There's so much to say here, man. I'm so glad. It's one of those episodes where you think kind of on its surface, like, all right, like, we'll we'll touch on it. It's a pop culture touch, touchstone. We got to definitely hit the hit all the marks and. You know, but there's really a lot to say. It's really kind of a fruitful. It produced a lot of fruit in my imagination for 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 definitely this discussion. Sure. There is much to say. I agree with you. It's a it stands apart from T2 because I remember T2. I was way too young to be seeing when I saw it. I was probably like seven or eight, but I had the T2 toys and it was like for some reason, it was just one of those things I was allowed to see. But here's the thing is that what I was surprised about with seeing the Terminator First of all, I love what you were saying about the mystique of movies and how you were kind of afraid of them. I always bring up Large Marge, like how much that scared me. The end of Stand By Me, how much that scared the fuck yeah. out of me as a kid. Great and example. How it, you're just nonplussed as an adult. Like at least I am. Where I just, I just sit down. And I'm like, I don't. I'm, nothing is really bothering me about anything that I'm watching. Some of it's like scary when I watch The Witch or oh, one of the A twenty four movies or whatever. I'm like, okay, this is really unsettling. But it's not going to like keep me up at night. 
So I totally understand what you mean, because this movie does have all the dynamics of it. But here's the thing. Here's what's interesting about it. And it reminded me a little bit of some other movies that do this, although they're not scary, per se, like Labyrinth, where they there's an implication about what's happening, but they never really actually show you anything. And like when you really think about it, Terminator 2, as I remember, is way more violent. Yes. The original Terminator. They show the guy at the gun store getting the chuck and put up to his chest, but they don't show him getting shot. Right. They show the the roommate running away from getting shot by the laser sight, but you don't see the bullet run. And it's just implied that that's what happens. The only like what I would consider gratuitous violence in quotes is watching the Terminator model get pummeled at the end in the crusher. And that's not violent at all. So I, I it was interesting in watching it. It's action packed. It almost seems like it was made to skirt that line with the uh, the eighties teen in mind or something in that weird space where there was no PG 13. Yeah. Or it was just coming about. Exactly. The red dawn and, and indie two, I guess would have been uh, around this time. So I just, I liked that because I'm always talking and going on about how like we shouldn't use just violence as a tool. We can use a lack of violence as a tool, right? We, we can use that. We know it's violent. We know the suspense is in not really knowing the ramifications because perhaps it really should just be through the perspective of that one person who lives or dies based on it. So in, in that case, it's Sarah Connor. So I really dug that. And, and the other thing that I was surprised about to your point is about Arnold is I just find Arnold Schwarzenegger to be captivating. I don't know what it is about him. Like he's not a good actor. He doesn't have an eloquence or, you know, enunciate right his, his accent especially at this point is like off the charts bad and that's totally fine but no matter what i see him in in general especially from that era and moving forward to like the mid 90s he's just like i like arnold and even when you get into like oh he's a now he's in politics it's like okay that's fine and then oh he cheated on his beloved wife and i'm like i know i guess i'm not that mad about it oh and he knocked up his maid and, and I'm like, yeah I just read about it but, but it's, it, it's arnold it's just arnold like right I'm, and I, so I, I was reminded by that of that, too, here is that I really like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's not like an essential, you know, American actor, German, Austrian, American actor or whatever. But he's just he's just so interesting. And he's a, he's a player in the time a really important time in, in our show and in our lives. So the Terminator is dope. Now, I wanted to ask you, do you remember the hullabaloo around it being out? Like, do you remember you said, you know, you went and saw it and you saw it at, you know, on cable or whatever. But do you remember your contemporaries talking about it? Like, was it a relevant movie amongst the 84 is like, you know, post Return of the Jedi. You're about to get Temple of Doom. Sure. Um, there's just a lot going on. Yeah. I'm wondering if this was like or is this a movie that benefited from time? Do you think? Yeah. I mean, that, that's a really good point. Kyle. I mean, there's so much pop culture slash nerd culture stuff happening. Star Wars was just wrapped. Indie, like you said, Ghostbusters was come, all this kind of stuff, right? So back to the future is not even that far off at this point, right? So you have all these things. But you know what's funny? I don't remember Terminator being like a household thing or a thing with discussion, uh, you know, with, with childhood lunchroom, playground, cafeteria discussions until T T2 came out. And that was 91, I believe. And I was already late in high school by that point. I was a junior. So that's when I remember. And like you said, too, with all the merch, and the product placement and the toys and the bed sheets and the lunch boxes and all these things that seemed to not spring out until Terminator 2 came out. But, you know, we did have the NES game 
And then later mm-hmm. on, on I think Atari had it on the 800 computer, and then the SNES had some Terminator stuff. And so, but I remember it, it was the starting of that. You know, that machine was starting to churn, but slowly, I think, throughout the 80s. And, you know, it was much more successful than they ever anticipated on a shoestring budget of, what, less than $6.5 million. And it did really, really well. And I think I heard Michael Bean talking about it where he was saying that in the movies, you know, at that time in late 84, in the fall into the winter of 84, it was sustaining box office revenue week after week. In fact, growing where the trend was usually it would start strong and then taper off. He said Terminator week after week, maybe for six or eight weeks, maybe even more so, was sort of growing and snowballing. And movies didn't do that. So I think it was kind of a word of mouth thing. I think it was partially, it was very strategic if you think about it. I'm not sure how intentional it was. But people, especially Americans, sort of fascination with horror and sci-fi at that time, you're mashing up those two things. Now everybody's interested, right? So it's getting word of mouth. Neighbors are telling each other about it. Friends, colleagues, classmates, whatever. And then... It was sort of took on that thing, maybe one of the first things of the 80s where it had that sort of dynamic where it grew. And um, that's exciting. And I think that kind of fed into the popularity, you know, Arnold becoming a movie star and then the franchise kind of obviously spring. It's amazing that it took six years, seven years yeah. for another one to it's, come it out. Is, it's incredible. I don't know what that's all about. but Yeah, that's strange. Yeah, That's it is. Strange. I'm sure there's an interesting story there, too. I think James Cameron's not an easy person to work with, as far as I can tell. But yeah, you hear that. But sure. It's so funny watching him, too. Like he has these really bona fide sci fi and horror roots. And then he just ends up making not that there's anything wrong with it, but he ends up making Titanic and now like Avatar. And it's just so different. It's interesting that the track a, a creative person like that can end up on. It's amazing. And, His trajectory and is really unique. Yeah, I agree. Really? He's, he's an interesting cat. So I wanted to. uh kind of break things down. I guess we can talk about the characters and of course we can encapsulate the different moments here as well. I want to start with Anthony A. Of course, you can write into us on Patreon. I put up a thread for each show and you can submit your inquiry. Yo, Ant. (laughs) Anthony. Ant. Hello, Moriarty Rose. The Terminator is a classic 1980s action movie, as well as being a seminal film for both Schwarzenegger and Cameron. Mm. During the production of this movie, Cameron and Heard considered various actors for both Kyle Reese and the Terminator. If Mike Metavoy of Orion Pictures had his way, O.J. Simpson, who was fresh off of his Hall of Fame football career, as well as being an up and coming actor in movies such as The Towering Inferno and Capricorn One, would have been cast in the role of the T-800. Legend is that Cameron objected because he felt Simpson seemed too nice and wouldn't be believable as a ruthless killing machine. Fast forward (laughs) 10 years later, O.J. would be tried for the vicious murder of his late wife, Nicole Simpson, and her friend Ron Goldman, which many people believe he committed. Thank you for the great show. I think we all know. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. How crazy is that? It's so funny. Well, when you think about it, because I always think about his character, O.J. Simpson's character in my beloved Naked Gun movies, which dad loves as well. And he's fucking hysterical. In Hilarious. Those like, he's awesome. Like there are scenes, the iconic scene where he's like all like he's in the ship and he's all in the play and he's like people are banging him in the head and he's just walking around. And he's all like uh, out of his mind. And then, of course, I love the one in the 33 and the third where he like catches the baby that like gets launched out of a thing like a football player. <laughs> and then he goes to spike the baby and someone stops him. That. Which is he's so he he reminds me a lot. There were a couple people like that, like Peyton Manning kind of strikes me as that now where yeah. you could be. He's very funny in SNL. I love I loved him on that. And um, um, Terry Bradshaw, of course, had his run and, and others. So 
it is interesting to think about that. How do you feel about the casting of of Schwarzenegger? I mean, obviously, we can't see it any other way. But if you use your mind's eye, Dig, I'm curious if if you can see any of these other possibilities as this character, including what I had said earlier, which is that I think Arnold began to be drawn into the orbit of this movie is playing Reese, which in hindsight would have been comical. It w- it, the movie would not have worked no matter who played OJ, because Michael Bean, is that how you say it? I think that's how you say it. Yeah, right? I think so. Yeah, I think um, so. He's awesome. And so it, they all are. Those three players are so important in their own roles. But imagining Schwarzenegger not playing Terminator and then imagining him playing that character, I just think undoes everything. Absolutely. So it's really an, an interesting inflection point. What do you think about that casting and where it could have gone and how good it actually ended up being? Yeah, the OJ thing is hilarious because he does have that sort of comedic quality. We think about those films that you were mentioning, but yeah, he's got that sort of good or he had that sort of good natured in on the joke sort of quality, you know, sort of that, that comic who was like, the joke was on him, but he, you know, he had a good sense of humor about it. He could laugh at himself type of thing. It's, it's just sort of an appeal that he had. And then I also heard that Mel Gibson was offered the part of the T8, uh, T-800 and turned it down because he didn't think he was right for it. It is funny to flip the script and think about Arnold being the resistance fighter or the protector and how, like you said, that really couldn't work because who would you feel could beat him? Where would the suspension and the tension be, right? And even Lance Hendrickson, who was initially promised the role, I think, and also, I think, helped James Cameron sell it to the Orion execs, movie execs, by dressing up and going into the guy's room and sitting there and threatening him with a fake gun and the shades and all that kind of stuff. There's two different ways. you I could see Lance Hendrickson being doing the part. And you would have this sort of robotic, sort of have this threat that's less of a physical threat, but more of like this otherworldly evil. With Arnold, you have this sort of alien to the earth, or at least alien to the time, otherworldly quality. But he also has a physical, there's also a physical threat there because of his size, and the cadence and the way he moves and the way he has, there's a physical threat about Arnold playing the part. And you know what? He just, like you were saying already with Arnold, he just works in the part because I think Arnold does have a very strange charisma, but also the fact that he has the thick Austrian accent, he, the stilted acting, I think it plays into the part of making him feel robotic, making him feel like a cyborg, like he's not quite human. It's whether it's a coincidence or it was a happy accident or whatever, or maybe, you know, it was intended. Arnold really does work as this menacing, driving, murderous robot. He he just really works in that in that regard. It really is a fortunate thing. It's to the point, too, now and we think of also we think of the franchise, especially the second film and how iconic his performance is in that, too. And other things he's done. You know, by the way, Commando, Total Recall, Running Man, Conan, all these other things, Kindergarten Cop, whatever. He's iconic. You know, True Lies, whatever you want to talk about with Arnold. Yeah, he has a quality that I think, I think from the, from the get-go, Kyle, I think he has a quality, all told, everything he brings is so unique. No one else brings that. Even if you think of a, a contemporary like Sly, right? And we know they're, they're famous sort of um, 
competing for roles and their, their, the competition they've had with each other and all that kind of stuff, their rivalry. But even a character like Sly, Arnold brings something really unique that no one else has. And I think it is a, a mixture of the, the accent, not being American or Western, you know, the physical, the physical presence, his sheer size. I mean, even look at the difference between T, you know, Terminator, where he's still in bo- really bodybuilder form and T2, where he's still a big man, but he's not, you know, he's not pumping iron in the gym. He's not competing with bodybuilding anymore by 19, you know, the early 90s. So I think he really, all in all, I think what Arnold brings, the whole package, is just so different than anybody else, be it a Mel Gibson or a Lance Hedrickson or an OJ or whoever else was trying out for these roles at the time, whoever else was big, Bob, Bobby De Niro, whoever else, Harvey Keitel, other contemporaries from the mid to late 80s, uh, early to mid 80s. So I, I just think he has that unique quality. There's no one else quite like Arnold. And that's it. It starts with that. Yeah, I think so. It's almost a shame in a way. It's almost unfair to Linda Hamilton that it's like she really should be the face. She is a, the face of Terminator. In, she is in, in a in way, obviously. Ways. But it's a shame that it's like, why is it Arnold? It would have been. I, I don't even really remember how they they draw it all like they draw it all up in the second movie. I'm really excited to to see it. It's been so long since I've seen so that completely. Good. But. It reminds me of Alien in the sense, and of course, James Cameron works on Aliens after this, but where it's about a it's about a strong female badass protagonist that finds herself in a in a situation she didn't expect. And I just think the acting, the performance of Arnold is is stilted in Arnold, but it allows the other actors to really, especially the two that he's around the most to to play it up. And I really think that the movie benefits from having a really small and tight intimate cast you have the detectives and you have the doctor and uh, you know you have a couple like the roommate which i really like that character i love her that scene in her when she's in the bathroom and she's listening to her headphones like just the you know like her her bopping around and stuff just a really good subtle it's just wonderful (laughs) dude like the synth soundtrack just really captures the mo the 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 scene obviously that that nightclub scene which i want to talk about specifically is awesome and is just wonderfully 80s it really it feels right but it doesn't feel aged at all it doesn't feel old it feels like it's a period piece if yes. that makes any sense it's very well said yeah it's very true to that very specific time and having lived in los angeles recently and you've been to los angeles many times you lived there and you also were there recently with me when you'd visit it hasn't changed very much i mean and looking at it in this movie it's so funny it's like this really still looks like los angeles it, not not much has changed here Dig, let's talk a little bit about um, where do we begin? Hmm. Well, let's talk about other characters, I guess. Linda Hamilton. We'll talk about Sarah Connor. She's awesome. She plays a 19 year old in this. She looks like she's 35 because of the. <laughs> That's such an 80s thing. What is know, it with 80s like, chicks? I just I, I always have to say it. It's just unbelievable. I'm like, you're 19 years old. OK. <laughs> so she plays a, a waitress and she's the target of. The Terminator. Now, one of the things I thought was really funny is the dynamic in this movie, the reliance on pay on pay phones and phone books, which I think is so funny. Like the, the Terminator knows to go back and look at the phone book. Kyle Reese goes, knows to go back and look at the phone book. I just think that's so funny and so, da- and so a little dated, I guess, in its own way. I just was saying it wasn't. But I love her performance. I think she's awesome. 
wide range from that kind of, you know, she's late to work and she's running behind and she's getting stood up and she's just a normal girl and all that. And then she's in this unbelievable situation and she really grounds it. I think it's like, imagine what she's thinking all this time. This guy's fucking crazy. I mean, I've tried, I really try to identify the point when she really starts to believe him and then she does fully buy in. And so she's on a wild roller coaster. This movie also happens pretty quickly. So, which I like as well, really condensed timeline of a few days. It seems like, so what do you think about, um, Linda Hamilton's performance as Sarah Connor, the, the epic character that we see again later, of course. She's so good, man. I, I, you know what? I didn't really know much about Linda Hamilton going into this, so I had to dig down and do some research. And she's really great in the part. I mean, really, you have to start with that whole 80s thing of girls looking so much older, older than they actually are. You know, when I found out, I think because they don't really say how old she is by number in the film. So later on in an interview or something I was researching, it came up that she was 18 or 19 years old. And I was like, wait, what? I mean, I get that she's like young, but I, I would have settled for like mid twenties, but she looks like she could be in her mid thirties. And that's not a knock on Linda Hamilton. It's just, I think the way it was in eighties films, I think because of the style of dress, the hairstyles and all that kind of stuff, because I never, I was there in 1984 as a 10, 11, 12 year old. And Real life didn't look like that. Like people actually look pretty much, I think, their age. I don't think now I look at myself and this is again, I'm not I'm not gassing myself up, but I don't often think I look like I'm 48 years old. Now, the gray and the gray maybe sort of sort of tells a different tale. But Hmm. you know what I mean? I think generally people didn't look like that but in films it just kind of worked that way but you know she brings a great acting presence too now she's new york trained new school stella adler classically trained actor and i think too her coupled with michael Bean, i think they bring and some of the secondary cast too i think they really bring hard acting chops to this and you really do feel for her character and you really do your heart really does go out because it's before she finds out that she's the target. It's already a little harrowing and scary that two Sarah Connors were murdered and, you know, her co-workers bring it up and you're like, whoa, like that must be even that even before it gets any further and they're being pursued by this assassin robot. It's already creepy. And you're really putting yourself in her place. being like, wow, Jesus, how would I handle this? And I'm being absconded by some future resistance fire that's come back to rescue me. And it's kind of presented, even though it's kind of, it's, it's fantastical, right? But it's presented in a really realistic way. It's very grounded. And she just looks so 80s too. She really does look very much you know, 80s. She's working at this Bob's Big Boy proxy burger joint, greasy spoon, just some waitress trying to live her life. She's got a roommate just hanging out in LA, mid 80s. You know, it's like, oh man, this poor girl, it, you know, finds out, you find out she's she's got a role to play in this, in the future, in this post-apocalyptic future. But uh, I I love it. And I love the story, too. I think the story is actually it's a lot more substantive and it's a little deeper than I remembered it. In fact, I still have questions before. I think you could kind of backfill with Terminator 2. We haven't gone there yet. But as of right now, I still have questions. I think the story is a lot more complex than I remember it, actually. Well, it's 
I agree with you. And and what I wrote in my notes, because I wanted to make sure I, I kind of remembered this idea was that I wrote sci-fi often tries to avoid time paradoxes, which can ruin stories. But Terminator leans into them. That's the idea. Like the idea mm. is to create a new a paradox okay. to create a new future. That's the entire notion. So, you know, like there's all these things in, in sci-fi where it's like we can't change the past there. There's some sci-fi where no, no matter what you do, I mean, there's a whole philosophy or I guess it would be a, a philosophy of physics where or a time of space and space where like nothing you do, in other words, can change reality. Like you can try not to do something you can, but like the outcome will be whatever it is. Like right. that's already set um, a sort of predestined sort of thing. And in that kind of realm of sci-fi, of course, we, we often know that some hard sci-fi like Mass Effect or others where it's time is treated or in interstellar where time is treated very literally. And then there's these, this idea of grandfather paradoxes and all of this of going back, like back to the future and, meeting your own mother and how you can fuck everything up and undo yourself. The thing is, is that that's often looked at. And I guess it is in our story, too, as this perilous thing or this thing on the side. But Terminator revolves entirely around that. The idea is to completely undo what has already happened. And I don't think I realized that until, like you said, we got into the more substantive parts of the story. They have a few parts of the movie. I'm sure you noticed where they dump all the information. So you got to like pay attention and i'm totally fine with that i love that kind of stuff that could, have been the whole, that could have been as far as i concerned the whole movie was just me telling you know telling me this kind of thing but they say something or reese says something which i don't think i ever really knew in my my kind of loose knowledge of terminator that the that skynet had lost and so it's already over and so they need to basically if i'm understanding it right they need to go back and basically what i wrote in my notes was re-roll the war and see what happens by just shaking it up again. Like, can they just change this one freedom fighters birth to re-roll the engagement with humanity for a different outcome? Cause they lost already. Yes. I think that's how I understand it. I, I think you're right. And I don't think I got that as much. And so you're right. That's super deep because it's yeah. basically, so how do you feel about that? About kind of playing with time paradoxes, changing the past as that being part of the, as opposed to avoiding changing the past or being scared of changing the past these guys the terminators want are, are leaning totally into it i love that aspect of the of the story yeah it's super fun it's it's insidious in a way and you know just having time travel and a realistic you know quote unquote realistic crack at time travel i think is really fascinating to begin with and then kind of putting that spin on it makes it really interesting and also just kind of like who knows what's going to happen it's still a crapshoot but it's worth a shot compared to what actually did happen. And also right. the, the the people, the participants traveling back in time to take a shot at altering the future, not being able to go back. They're stuck back there. So they're they're essentially doomed, in other words, which is kind of I cool. love that, by the way. I that's love so I great. think that's I think that's an awesome, especially when it connects to Reese being, you know, John Connor's father and all of the rest. I think that that's. That's really it's dynamic and deep and interesting storytelling, in my opinion. It's good shit. And I, and I yeah, I totally agree. Now, one thing I wanted to ask is, well, actually, before I get into this, we should talk about Reese a little bit. Kyle sure. Reese. Clark Petra wrote in and said T101 series brothers. This is an all time favorite movie, which I saw far too young, but loved anyway. Is Michael Bean? And I think, again, we're saying that right. Underrated in this film. I loved him in nearly all of his roles, and this is no exception. When trying to explain the Terminator to Sarah, there is an amazing line he delivers, quote, it doesn't feel remorse or pity or fear, and it absolutely will not stop ever until you are dead, end quote. 
His intensity in that scene is award worthy, in my opinion, that the conversation around the Terminator series always focuses on Arnold and the brutal decline of the films after T2, with no mention of how well Bean anchors this movie as Sergeant Reese. Thoughts? Yeah, totally, man. I mean, it's, it's as I said, Dave, the cast is smaller than I remember. And I, I, I don't always need that, but I because you like your ensembles once in a while. But yeah, I do dig focus it's why we like wild arms for instance i always bring that up because there's just three characters in it that's it there's no people coming in and out of your party and getting distracted it's just three characters yeah and you're just always with them and i and there's something to be said about that i think you're right like or i think he's right uh clark in that there are these really memorable scenes being in the interrogation room as the doctor's like making fun of him on the monitor the scene when they're crouched down in the the Ford or wherever they're in as the cops are looking for them in the in the parking garage. The scene where his wound is revealed in the drainage ditch mm-hmm. and so on and so forth, where he's quite good. And there's a lot of action. There's a lot of cool scenes. I love him slinking through the store, putting the coat on quietly and all of the rest. I love the contrast between that and Arnold just going in and just destroying people and getting what he wants. I also love that they kind of portray him as a good guy immediately. They, there's a really nice scene in the beginning with Arnold and Bill Paxton. And uh, uh, Nixie wrote in actually about Bill Paxton and said, can we get a moment of appreciation for Bill Paxton's this absurd outfit and hair in this movie? <laughs> and for the fact that he's the only actor with the distinction of being killed by the Terminator, a xenomorph, and the Predator. Ah. Good point. We haven't done Predator yet. No. So That's we have we have that really awesome scene where Arnold treats them violently, steals them clothes, steals their clothes. And he's like, you know, that dude that stole my pants or whatever he says, you know, that son of a bitch stole my <laughs> whatever's going on. Like, And uh, the, so we have these different scenes where where Arnold is acting violently and ruthlessly and then being without knowing anything about him, we can kind of portray him or understand that he's good or better. He doesn't seem to be attacking anyone. He could have blown that one cop's head off when he's like, what year is it? Right. That's and another so, great part. Another great yeah, seat. So, so talk to me a little bit about more about his performance. I mean, how, how are you feeling it and how important do you think it is to grounding it? Does he not get enough credit for his role? I don't think he does Terminator. get enough credit. Michael Bean, just in general, you know, I'll always love him as my beloved Corporal Hicks and my beloved aliens. But this is second for me. He's and he's just as good in this movie, if not better. You know, he brings that gravitas. He brings that grounding. You really buy it. You really buy that he's from the future. He's this resistant fighter, that desperation. You feel bad for him because he's got to, you know, he's kind of tasked with trying to make people believe him, trying to tell his story in the police station. You know, they're going to be dubious, right? You know, they're not going to believe they're going to, you know, chalk it up, chalk him up as insane. So he's tasked with a crazy, not only against this lethal assassin, basically indestructible assassin robot, but. He's also got to deal with just being, you know, this future Earthling back in 1984, trying to convince people of his plight. And he's so good, dude. He He's so good from the beginning. And he really works. He really works. He has a quality. Michael Bean has this quality. Same thing. Very similar thing to what he does with Hicks in Aliens. You feel like you trust him. You know, you feel like it's somebody, he's somebody with your best interests at heart. He's going to protect you, uh, even against all odds. And you know it's against all odds in this movie, against this, against this menace, against this robotic monster. 
but you know he has that he has that quality he he has that likability that intensity and he really brings that and it's so funny i was thinking i don't know what what even prodded this thought because i tuned out of walking dead so long ago the amc series but he ended up i was like he has to be in that or i remembered him in that or i remembered hearing but he in the most recent season which i think was season 11 if i'm not mistaken he popped up he you know they gave him a part in that and i just that just feels Mm. right to me it feels like he should be involved in something like that he has that quality i guess it's something more current that has an 80s quality to it walk which i think of walking dead in that regard but yeah he's awesome dude i just love him and i have to see tombstone because i've seen him talk about that being one of his favorite things that he's done outside of terminator and aliens so I have to see that. And of course, he's done The Abyss and he did Navy Seals and he's always good. He has that very 80s action star, good guy, charisma quality to him. I Definitely. Think. That you good know. smile and that, you know, like that, that kind of approachable demeanor, it seems like, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, he's a he's an interesting he's an interesting actor and an interesting action star in this. Yeah, I love his performance. I think he's awesome. And of course, we already talked about Linda Hamilton quite a bit but i i i love linda hamilton also in children of the corn which is that's we right have to, we have to, she's really one of only two adults in the entire movie for for most of it and that and came before this i think yeah i believe right? so yeah, yeah. I think, I think wow i forgot about the same that. year actually but maybe the year before yeah i love that movie and we'll get to that at some point because i still think that that's my favorite horror movie ever wow that's and, that's uh, kudos yeah yeah well i love props. i love I think little kids are scary and religion is scary. And when you put all that kind of stuff together, sure. Kids killing their parents and all that kind of very children. of the court is dark as fuck. I mean, you want to talk about a really, truly dark movie. It's not about, it's not about like one person going on a killing spree or someone dying. It's about like a, a, a town in which everyone is killed. Yeah. By their kids. That's Stephen King. <laughs> yeah. He wrote yeah, it yeah. in that, that seventies compilation night shift, which was introduced to me by my Miss Perry. So oh, back in the day. nice. So I wanted to talk about the specific scene and so did Leighton Irvine. It's the nightclub scene. He wrote, wrote it and said, hello, men. This movie is one of my favorites of all time. A true classic. I would love to praise one of my favorite moments in cinema, which is the scene in the nightclub where the three main characters finally meet the use of slow motion and the way the music transitions from the dance song into that menacing foreboding score. gives me goosebumps every time I watch it. I think maybe the sequel overshadowed it a bit, but the original film is to me still the best. Thank you for writing in Leighton. I love that scene. In fact, Good I shit. love that setting that 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 whole tech noir club is super cool. The woman that's working out up front taking, you know, or, you know, taking your money, the bouncer, the the all the scenes there. There's so there's such weird shit in it, too. Like there's a USA Today newspaper. Oh, wow. Like dispenser in there for some reason. Good I don't eye. know. Yeah, I don't know what was going on in there, but <laughs> I love the I love the music. I love the 80s feel. I mean, we're, I'm obsessed with synth. I love synth and, and new wave. So it's it's cool to get that all mixed in. And again, it feels right. It feel like when they're getting ready, like I said, in their in their apartment, everything feels really right. So I, I do love that scene. And I love that they don't you don't really understand. I don't think until afterwards. Why couldn't Reese identify the T-800 before he went about his business, mm. knowing that he had to instead spy on Linda? And he explains later that it's because they at one at one point, the models were he says like we're rubbery and you can like identify them easily. And now they're like indistinguishable from humans on the outside. And so he has to kind of wait for the Terminator to make his move. So he takes out that shotgun and just 
is going nuts and I have no idea how no one else got shot with him shooting at him from that afar with a with spray like that but so good what do you what do you think about that whole setting and that really is peak 80s and I think peak Terminator and it's in, in some way that that scene I love it I love Kyle sort of explaining that the T-600 had like rubber skin and you could identify I just see like some clumsy looking like rubber mask they're all jiggly and trying yeah. to like look legit but like come on dude I know you're not I, yeah it's I like two kids in like, a, in like a trench coat yeah. <laughs> so just how, how evolved the T-800 is must be really daunting for Kyle and his people it's like well now they actually have BO and they sweat and they deteriorate and they their skin can rot it's like wow that They've really gone up like the model years really, like really stepped up in a short amount of time. But that tech noir scene is so great for so many reasons, man. I mean, I love L.A. as a character in this in this film, mostly set at night, kind of got skid row, you know, just east of like downtown Los Angeles. I'm not even sure, like you may be able to speak to this, Kyle, like the boundaries of skid row have shifted over the years. But back then, you know, that three square miles of like just east and south of downtown L.A., like the way that looks on film, the grittiness of like the 35 millimeter film and all that. Yeah, I think I'm putting I think that they kind of gentrified some of it when the convention center and Staples Center went in, like where the Lakers played downtown L.A. or whatever they call it. That so I think that because we used to play, we used to basically not play. We used to stay in Skid Row like Airbnbs when we were at E3 every year. So oh, they're like right on top of each other. So that's I know that I'm very familiar with where they were. And, and it really does still look like that. It's so funny. It hasn't changed much, right? You know, Pico like that. All that. Yeah, it, it really doesn't like L.A. just looks with all the alleys and everything. It's so the funny, old, man. The buildings are lower. So the alleys are more conspicuous in Los Angeles. It's yeah, it's very interesting. I I, I um. Yeah, I'm into it. Like, I'm into the aesthetic. I, I it, the movie holds up much better than I thought it would from that point of view. It and holds I think up. A, yeah, yeah, you know. Really but does. I wonder about I wonder about this when we talk about things like this, specifically this film, though. How it sort of benefits by resonating in an '80s way, because even though we're saying like a lot of this stuff hasn't changed and it's still like a legit good movie, the way it's shot, the quality, the acting, the quality of the filmmaking. Stan Winston's contributions. We'll talk about the effects, but I wonder how much it benefits from that nostalgia where it's like the music is very eighties. You have that very stranger things esque graphic opening, right? Where it's like everything stranger things is channeling through, through the intro of that show. Yeah, John and, Carpenter kind of shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. John Carpenter esque the, the way the sound is a little bit, you know, it's, it's mono sound. There's a little distortion to it. The grain of the film, you know, and just having to make selections and make shots and make decisions based on a low budget, cutting away, you know, showing the violence and, and um, hinting at the violence and the, a lot of the violence and the bloodshed being off screen, that sort of thing. But the Technoark club scene is so great because it does a thing that 80s, the 80s films, I think, do so well. First of all, 450 to get into a club, right? $4.50 to yeah. get into a club. How great is that 40 it's years awesome. ago? But it does this thing where it's like it's supposed to be like a punker type place, but you have punks mixed with bikers mixed with seemingly preppy people. And you have the USA Today newspaper machine and like <laughs> candlelit booths. But you have people wearing chains. You got the chain link fence in there. Like it, it mashes up. You get it. Like you get what it's supposed to be, but it mashes up a lot of different things. And I think 80s films just did that. 
you know, but you get it. You get what the intent is. It's supposed to be a club. It's supposed to be somewhere where people are hooking up or dancing. And maybe there's a bouncer who's a tough guy. And, you know, Arnold just levels them and one flick of the wrist just squeezes the guy's hand and breaks all the bones in his, you know, in his hand, that type of thing. But it's so great because it's really a calling card to what you want to see in an 80s film. And I think it's a big part of the appreciation because and it's not even cheese. I don't even want to say it that way. It's the way films were made four decades ago. You know, it's just it just feels like it felt to watch it in the 80s. Gives you that same resonance. And I love that. I, lo- I love that about this film in particular. Let's talk a little bit about, um, I guess, the ethos in the movie of going forward and seeing the future mm. before the jump and then kind of existing in the past. So this kind of dual layer of storytelling, these two tracks of storytelling. There's one small thing that I would redo in the movie and then a bigger thing that I would think I would do differently in the movie. The small thing is, is that I think speaking of time when Reese is running away from the T-800 in the beginning and he's like going through the store and, and there's all this stuff he sh- after he asks the cop he runs in that store puts the jacket on or whatever is yeah, going on the Nikes he, there should be a scene where he stops and picks up a paper and looks at it and finds the date oh, I was thinking about that when I was running through good thinking you know like even if you don't see it like what the, what he's seeing it would be cool if like he was just turning a corner and he like just picks up a paper and just looks at it and then just throws it down and runs away so that was smart. one thing I was thinking of very smart but the second thing was bigger okay and it's this idea that do we ever need to see any of that ever in the future? I was thinking about it. It's where the movie looks weakest. And well, let's hear from Jacob here. He wrote in and said, Yo. why haven't we got another purely future war movie? Sure, we had Terminator Salvation, but it had one critical flaw. It sucked. Every scene in this movie from the future looks so grimy and has great sci-fi imagery. All I want is an hour and a half of skull and bone highways, purple sci-fi lasers, 80s synth wave and a chrome plated manhunter. Is that really too much to ask for? The hunter killers are great. Everything about the idea of being there is is interesting. I don't think it looks great, but moreover, I think the movie could have benefited from never seeing it. Yes, I, I, I like the idea of us never really having confirmation of any of this post-apocalypse, but that we obviously know something's fucked up. There's this robot. There's this dude that claims to be from the future. There seems to be these murders of these women in, in, in search of this one target. And just working with that without seeing, without having to go there and see it, I think would have kind of removed the movie's most significant Achilles heel, which is the way those, I think it's cool aesthetically. It just doesn't look very good because a lot of the movie takes place in the real world. So just let the movie, it's like the matrix, let the movie take place largely in the real world. I think that's totally fine. And then you have your gritty ship and all of that and that movie, whatever the case might be. So I think that that's my one major complaint about Terminator. If you would want to call it, that is it doesn't need to be there. In fact, what I think would have been cool is if when Reese dies, you know, he, you see the picture of, Sarah and what it what it should have been was in my opinion is like Reese brings the picture with him to the future even though they have this whole thing where that nothing can come with them and I totally understand that but right I don't know have some way of 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 finding this picture in the present and that's kind of this the the nod to the audience like this is this dude really is the real deal and then when she goes down to Mexico and the kid takes the picture she like realizes holy shit it's the it's the same picture. Yeah. You know, and so like I'm on the timeline that I'm supposed to be on or whatever the case might be to hand this off in the future to bring it back in the past and so on and so forth. 
I don't know. I just does that vibe with you at all? And the idea of never having seen the future, but having it just referenced like they reference cool things like no one knows who started the nuclear war. No one really understands the amount of death that happened, like almost no one's alive. And but I, I don't know. I'm just tantalized by never seeing it. No, definitely. That resonates. I mean, really, when you show and don't tell, right, it's scarier, potentially scarier, much more frightening and more interesting if you leave all that to the imagination and you just leave all that to wonder, it's like, you know what happened? You know, there was a nuclear holocaust. You know that the robots rose up against the humans. You know, there was a lot of death and destruction. So to leave us kind of like wondering what that looked like, what that must have been like to try to live through the, the amount of loss, the amount of devastation. It's just automatically that's just when you leave it to our imagination, whatever we could conjure up there is going to be so much more, so much worse and so much more descriptive than what we could see on screen. I also think they were there was probably some flops with there with like coming off the advent of things that were very successful sci fi properties like Star Wars. where it's like, oh, no, we got to show some of this sci fi stuff. You know, we got to show the hunter killers pursuing the resistance fighters in their time in 2029 and show the tech and show the lasers and show those sci-fi elements, the destruction and sort of wondering like if that was going to be part of the part of the allure of going to see it, you know, that type of thing. But also, unfortunately, happens to be the weakest because it's obviously miniatures. You know what I mean? It's there's not fancy motion control ships like Lucas was doing, ILM was doing with Star Wars. It's kind of sloppy. It's kind of um it's kind of gritty the way it's handled. It's low budge. And you know, so I like having it in there because it's so campy. It's kind of campy, especially now. Oh, yeah. Um I think even if you were watching it then and you had just come off seeing Return of the Jedi and some other high budget things, it still probably would have looked a little suspect. But you know, in today's standards, it's like, oh, you're going to see for an 80, an 80s film. Let's go. Let's double down and enjoy everything 80s about it, including, you know, the kind of inventive but low budget effects and, you know, the sort of playful, adventurous way to handle things with the stop motion or miniatures or Stan Winston's creature effects or uh, puppeteering or whatever was whatever they were doing. You know, they had to take a crack at. Every every movie, every 80s movie needed a little gore. So Arnold repairing his own arm and repairing his own face. It's just like the meat with the maggots and poltergeist on the countertop, right? You got to, or Large Marge. You had to have that freak out moment, you know? Right. There was kind of an 80s formula, this unwritten 80s formula. I'm happy that it's there, but I agree with you. It would have been nice to kind of leave more to the imagination or show that stuff later when the technology caught up. You know, that type of thing. So that 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 could have been another way of handling it. You know, show it in a, in a later part of the franchise or a later film. Let's stick with this topic of special effects and go to Luke Tucker, who wrote in and said, nice night for a walk. We see very frequently <laughs> in video games, remaster, video games, remasters of outdated graphics. I know that George Lucas of it. I know that the George Lucas of it all makes it very loaded question. Luke, you're writing very awkwardly here, but what would you guys think of a remaster of some of Stan Winston's admittedly amazing for the time stop motion start SFX, specifically during the final sequence of the film being a low budget picture? It's completely understandable. But when compared to the groundbreaking uh, special effects in T2, it makes it takes me out of the film a bit these days, mainly the full body walking shots of the T800. Thank you, Luke, for writing in. 
in Middle English. Okay, so <laughs> yo, dude, Luke asks about this idea of going back and fixing this movie in some way. I, I'm curious what you think of that idea. I I've said in the past that I'm a little befuddled about why so so many people are so remiss to do this. <clears throat> if you can do it tastefully, I understand you have to keep the originals available. You can't go overboard and change things, which is what the Star Wars special editions were. And so I think that that kind of set an unfortunate precedent where people are like, well, no, 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 no. look at what George Lucas did. I mean, I'm like, look what George Lucas did to a lot of things. We still make movies. Right. You know, so I do look at the stop motion stuff specifically and I'm like, it's not very menacing. I wouldn't. Is anyone really going to mind if they can tastefully go and clean this stuff up and just release a special edition of this and make it better? And I know we've talked about it in the past about the principle of the matter. So. I'm curious what you make of the special effects, generally speaking, outside of those hunter killers and all the things we see in the in the flash forwards. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is such a gilded age of filmmaking, you know, where the practical visual effects and it was just changing. You know, the the mid to late 80s where it was really kind of that at the advent of the computer was really starting to take hold and take over. Now, I think when you talk about the modern, you know, the silicon graphics that they did, the liquid metal stuff that they did in T2, I think that was hot for its time. But if you go back, that looks really primitive, too. I mean, that was really early silicon graphic, you know, very, very, I mean, by today's standards, very primitive computer stuff. Now, it was taken to the next level six or seven years later. But I'm not opposed to remaking things like the Terminator. But the thing is, you have the practical effects you have the stop motion, the puppeteering, the rear projection, the miniatures, the maquettes, and the matte painting, and maybe even like dealing with pixelation and the oh creature God, what effects. What was with the matte painting at the end? That was so weird. Yeah, anyway, very strange. It's like what? What? Some strange yeah. choices. Yeah. That could have yeah. been like the coffers running dry. You know, yeah. like really, like we were like six point three point nine million type. You know, <laughs> we had like a hundred dollars <laughs> left or something. And you know the gross out effects and Stan Winston. But I would rather do, and they have, you know, do a new Terminator film where you're dealing with this mm. same period of time, or maybe you do something in between T Terminator and T2, or you do a prequel or something, and then you could see how it would look for this T-800 to kind of shed its human skin and be crawling around with an injured robotic leg and all that kind of thing. But the thing is, if you're going to redo it, and you have this adapted and evolved technology, I would think you're going to re-storyboard it. You're going to reshoot it. You're going to rethink the camera angles, the acting, the timing, the dialogue. So just redoing it, I, I think it really holds. I might be channeling my 10 or 11 year old self, but I think in a strange way, when they're being pursued by the Chrome short sort of terminator with it sheds human skin and it's sort of this evil robotic skeleton pursuing them and it's stop motion and it's obviously primitive and it's janky i think there's something scary about it i think there's something like the the lighting doesn't quite match the live action there's something gritty there's something kind of scary and frightening about it and again i could be kind of calling up my 10 year old self watching it in a dark den in 85 on the TV with no one else around or whatever. And just it being a little too scary for me, but still forcing myself to sit through it. But there's some kind of quality about 
the janky puppeteering and the stop motion and the miniatures and the rear projection that's not quite registering and all that kind of thing, not lining up correctly. There's something about it that there's there's part of me that is a little offended for wanting to redo that, you know, where it's like almost like that's sacred, yeah. you know what I mean? Because we're never going to do it point. that way yeah. again, yeah. Yeah. especially with the advent of the computer and the computer making everything easier and faster and largely cheaper in many ways. So that's, that's an interesting, it's always an interesting argument, but I'd have to be, I'd have to be convinced that makes sense. Totally. It totally makes sense. What do you make of um, the, when we talked about them, Paul Winfield plays mm. Ed Traxler. We have the aforementioned Lance Hendrickson as Vukovic. And uh, we have Earl Bowen as Dr. Silberman, the criminal psychologist. I like this trio of characters like that. We don't really see them and we see them interact a little bit with Sarah, but they're otherwise kind of on their own. We, we cut to them often, but I think they're really good. I like that Paul Winfield guy. He's a interesting, really good character actor. And I, I thought his role was, was pretty well done. What do you make of the, the cops? Yeah. Paul Winfield's awesome, dude. I, I got an immediate sort of something from him, an, an immediate appeal from him and watching it the first time again. And I was like, wow, you know, this guy is such a 70s, 80s, 90s character actor face. Like he would pop up in TV. He would pop up in film. Apparently he did a lot of stage stuff and finally won an Emmy like in the 90s, if I'm not mistaken, after being around for literally decades and doing projects with everybody under the sun, you know, and doing and and just kind of living his life as a character actor. I think they really had something with the Paul Winfield and Lance Henriksen character in um, Lieutenant Traxler and Detective Vukovic, they had a sort of, I don't want to say comic re- relief, but they had a little bit of a levity thing going on there with those two characters bickering and saying, you know, that coffee's two hours old and I put a cigarette out in it and sort of the, the hard-ass lieutenant and the detective who's trying to make him laugh or trying to please him. I think they could have done a little more with that, but I do think it speaks to James Cameron's sensibilities of, not even thinking about levity or humor or balancing out all the dire action, chase, suspense, tension. I don't think James Cameron thinks like that. I mean, think of even the Avatar franchise. Think of Titanic. I mean, they don't really have a lot of that. He sort of goes in for like the formula of like, just keep pushing. But it would have been kind of cool to see those two characters a little more and they also don't get proper deaths like they die like the rest of the cops in that station you know they're just kind of as expendable as every other cop the other thing that i have to kind of give a nod to Kyle, and i'm sure you recognize this is how scary that police station scene is because you have this police station you have this thing that people know it's like all right if anything is safe it's this police station packed with armed, experienced cops, right? But as soon right, it's as like, that, it's like Grand Theft, it's like Grand Theft Auto when when you're, you're like that's like thing. the place you can't go in. You know, like, <laughs> it's the same thing. Yeah. It's like and as soon as the lieutenant says, "Don't worry," to the Sarah character, you know, we got thirty cops here. He could have said two hundred. He could have said we have five hundred and thirty cops. You would have been just as worried, you know. And the Terminator just comes through and 
destroys it like he's stepping on an anthill. I mean, that's scary. You know, that's how to do horror. That's how to make something properly suspenseful and frightening. When you take something that's everybody knows, like that's safe, that's off limits, you know, that's indestructible. You can't, you can't fuck with that, you know? And then he comes through and just takes them all out systematically. It's, uh, it makes the, the Terminator a frightening character. And I have to say, hmm. he, the Terminator, the T-800, Arnold's Terminator in this film, very Michael Myers-ish, very Jason Voorhees-esque, where I think they only make a couple of mistakes. Like there's one scene where you see the Terminator running after them. You know, you don't want to see that level of desperation. You want to see a calmness calculated and like I know like very much like Michael Myers like I don't have to run I know I have this butcher knife I know I'm going to catch up with you you know that sort of quiet menace where you don't have to exert as much energy as the pursued right you're the pursuer you have the confidence that you're going to win the only other thing that they do in the beginning of the film is when Arnold's firing off the guns he's blinking when he's firing off those blanks and what they do is they remedy that later on with the sunk with the shades. Mm. So now he's completely expressionless. He's completely emotionless. But they slowly evolve into that. They they kind of they kind of hmm. seem to catch on to that maybe twenty minutes into the film, and then they do it properly. And he is by by halfway into that film, you're scared for for Kyle and Sarah for sure because you know that this thing, like he says. Like Reese says in the police station, you know, he's going to stop at nothing. You know, this guy is coming and there's no stopping him, you know. So and I think that makes it a proper horror film. To this point, Scott Marks wrote into us, uh, perhaps son of Richard Marks, says, hey, gents, (laughs) let's say T-800 succeeded in killing Sarah Connor. Terminators cannot self-terminate. So what was T-800's exit strategy? Does he go into hiding or run for governor later down the line? <laughs> also, Colin, did you name your new Wi-Fi or your house Skynet? Love all, all the work that you do for us. Thank you, Scott, for your kind Thank words. It's you. funny. You have a great memory. I, I did have my uh, my Wi-Fi network was called Skynet for That's a very long awesome. time back in San Francisco. No, I, I, when I moved to L.A., I, na- I started naming it Dratus from Battlestar Galactica. Oh, good. D-A-R-A-D-R-A-D-I-S. And More nerdy um, I shit. name it. I won't even tell you what I name it now because someone will fucking <laughs> probably hack me or something. Um, so what do you think of that, Dig? What was what was the idea here? Is this a plot hole? I don't know if they deal with this in T2. I, I don't know enough about Terminator's mythology, to be perfectly honest. So maybe it's answered later. It's a great but question. Was there, an in, was there an intention about what was what, what was supposed to happen to this machine before it was itself terminated? What What is supposed to happen with it? Because they do make clear, like, they're the only ones through. No one can go back. I like all that stuff. Yeah. So I mean, what do you think? Is there any reason not to think this thing could have taken out the entire human race? I mean, look what it did to that police station. It probably well, that's could have what got I was pretty wondering. far. That's what I was wondering. Is there like an is there a hierarchy of things? Like first you go after Sarah Connor, then you do all of these other tasks that we don't know about that all make the nuclear war go better for them later right. on down the line. Right, right, know? right. Um, well, maybe we just don't know that. I don't I don't, I don't. I don't know. I didn't think about it. Before I read the questions, did you think about that at all? That's a great question. No, that didn't occur to me. You know, I'm Mr. Suspension of Disbelief. I'll buy anything. I'm so gullible. But no, that's a great plan, though. I mean, that's a really great because we know that they they come from the future. They're stuck there in 1984. You know, they can't go back, both human and cyborg. So, yeah, that's a great thought. But 
now I'm kind of scared for 1984 because the way that thing wiped out a police station, I don't know. How would that fare against Marines or a SWAT team or... Yeah, presumably they'd eventually get him, but how much damage could he damage would he do? Right. right. A lot. Yeah. I would I, I would say super weapon. He's going to take no out doubt. LA at least. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah, you would imagine so. It's it's very Metal Gear, almost. <laughs> like, it, it seems like a Metal Gear enemy or something. Some sort of cyborg, but you have to trick him in some way to... Uh, I guess an EMP might be able to take them out, too. Who knows? I don't know. Again, I don't know enough. It makes me excited to go, although not very excited because the Red Letter Media videos about the newer newer Terminator movies are hysterical. Oh, they're just destroying them. them. But, uh, but it makes me interested to keep going even beyond T2. I saw Terminator 3. I remember it because there was like a... I remember there being like a... The, the woman, the blonde woman, I think there's like a blonde woman in it of some sort, and she was like the new three. Terminator. I don't remember that one. Yeah, so that's that's about as far as I ever got. But yeah, the only other thing I wanted to do before we go, and I can kick it over to you if any we haven't talked about anything, is just give a shout out to a couple of things. I loved the uh, the scene with the first of all the, the chain smoking detectives, but when he asks for a cig- cigarette, but then he already has a cigarette in his hand, I thought that was a really funny and interesting scene. And dude, I guarantee you you'll laugh hysterically if you go and watch the future scene where one of them jumps into like a car and chases away and and the guy gets into the uh the gun turret the the, the shots from far away dude are so funny because the guy the, the guy in the gun turret's just like he's like rubber the, yeah it's like it's totally out it's like one of those things in front of a car dealer almost that's and it's it, I, I actually was like i cannot believe that they use those shots that they they didn't just reshoot that and be like all right no we don't need anyone in the gun turret <laughs> never mind because it looks so goofy and it actually made me laugh out loud it so gets worse and worse and then yeah. when that car crashes that guy is just like pressed up against the yeah. wall and his yeah, body like his head, like, his gets rubber like body's like bending yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so i had to give that a shout out i, I love that but um oh, is there anything awful. else you want to talk about about the terminator you know what, dude? It's so it was such a pleasant surprise. Like this is one of the reasons why I love doing the show. Because again, I thought of it as a bridge to T two, and you know, I'm sure we'll do T two, maybe even this year, be a fun conversation. But I have forgotten how good this movie is. This movie holds up, and it's what the better part of two hours, not quite two hours long, but it's so it's so brisk. It's such a quick ride. Like it's over from start to finish so quick because it's so enjoyable, and. Man, I can't think of a film that ratchets up this amount of tension. The entire thing is a chase. The entire movie from A to Z is a chase. Now, there's cops involved. There's Sarah. There's Reese. There's the Terminator, the T-800. But the entire thing is a chase. And the way it plays out and the way they kind of did everything on this shoestring budget is really impressive. And, you know, I think a big a big conversation at the center of this thing, too, is James Cameron and just how he developed. I mean, coming out of Roger Corman's camp and doing schlock B, C movies and really low budget things and kind of starting in feature film as an art director and having that sort of thing and then blossoming into a director and going on to do two of the biggest budget films ever created in Titanic and Avatar coming out of these little films with aliens and terminator and tombstone and the abyss and it's amazing what a crazy ride it is and it would be cool to i haven't seen any of the new terminators i think the most recent one is from what 2019 or something something like that and i think 
Linda Hamilton's in it. Yes, I, I heard that. Yeah. Yeah. So she's in three total of of the six. I think or so. I think that's right. Maybe four, but I think three. Yeah. It would so, be cool to go back and do like a proper Terminator thing. I also, you know what, this thing and just rewatching again gave me a newfound appreciation for Schwarzenegger too. Like even in interviews, he's he's well spoken. He's charismatic. You know, he he. He's intelligent. He's never at a loss for words. You know what I mean? He seems to always have an angle on things. He's honest. You may disagree with his politics. And he had that, you know, the governor had his run. What was it? 2003 to 2004. Yeah, something like that. Because I was an intern at IGN, I believe, when it was all going down with him and Gray Davis. Yes. So I got a little, yeah, I got a little little taste of that. Remember that. Old, that. Oh, my God. A Republican will never be elected statewide in that state ever again. It's a, an amazing, an amazing that that happened. But he's he's really pretty is. beloved because he's like pretty liberal. So he's he's actually got a pretty good reputation, all, all things considered. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, good shit, man. I really enjoyed doing this. That was this was really fun. Yeah, me too. It was very fun indeed. By the way, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but it was uh, free to watch on Amazon Prime yes, as of right the time now, of recording yep. this. So, yeah, so I didn't even have to pay anything for it to rent it or whatever. So that was cool. So, yeah, it's available on uh, Amazon and I'm sure elsewhere. I think it was on Apple TV if you want to pay for it there. Obviously, Blu-ray and DVD. Much must watch movie. I feel like the Terminator oh, must is watch. And we'll get to T2, I assume, this year or later this year. We have to get into some of these games now and finish Game of Thrones as well, considering Shh. talking about games. And I'm almost done with the first book. I've been tearing through oh, it. I'm like 500 are. pages in. Yeah, dude, it's so good. It's so good. I got to say, <laughs> man, it's really good. And I, I will reiterate what I said, which is that having watched the show has made the book better, I think, because it's so dense with things that you don't have to waste bandwidth ma- imagining in your mind's eye people or locations you can kind of just use the show as a as a starting point for understanding and reference points okay and then they flesh it out a lot more okay it's so good and it's so much more about john aaron's death than the 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 show lets on it's so interesting oh the show doesn't go into that you you got me wanting to read this soon yeah man it's really good i'll tell you like i've just been floating around the pool like or an hour or so every day and just reading it that's awesome yeah good shit super cool dude we'll get back into all that We'll get back and all that. But Dave, uh, oh, we got we got it coming. We got it coming, my friend. Yeah, let's do a let's do a dad joke as we always do. As tradition dictates to end all the right, show. All right, Carl. I think you'll enjoy this one. This speaks to one of your main interests, Carl. Why did the football coach go to the bank? I don't know. To get his quarterback. <laughs> I should have known. That's oh my god. That uh, is a second grade joke if I ever that heard is, of it. That's a that legit. Is. You could tell your teacher if you're a second grader. So if you're a second grader out there listening to the show about the Terminator, <laughs> use this one. You should get some better parents probably too. <laughs> like my right. parents yeah. smoking a doobie in the kitchen while I watch this rated R movie <laughs> that gave me nightmares for weeks. All right, my friend. It was good to see you, Dave. Thank you for your time. Appreciate you as always. Oh, it was fun. Thanks for having me. Appreciate all of you out there as well. Thank you for your love, kindness, and support of all things. Last Stand Media, Knockback, Sacred Symbols, and of course, Defining Duke as well. Uh, We'll see you next time for more. Until then, goodbye. I'll be back. (laughs) Ha! Yes, indeed. (laughs) How do we get through the whole thing without I'll be back? Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. 
The show is conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Casual Misfits Gaming, Andrew Morgan, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLDFMA, Daniel Diamore, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Malachi Wall, Dave Cowell, Donald John Vaders, Tom Quinn, Stephen Interfield, Dallas Pastor, Eduardo Perez, Salty Trees, My Name is Effing Mayo, Logan Byford, GJ, Eddie Medina, Jason R. Zahn, Christopher Nog, Zeno Adam, Grayson Maxwell, Cody Woodall, Nuclear Prostate, Sorta Serious Gaming, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Zia Parrix, Henry Groth, Relentless Rex, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Graham Plays, Christian R., Jad Rita, Benjamin Moon, Patrick Skipper, Brian Hernandez, Espinoza, Sweaty Mitt, Chris Kelly, Remington Wilson, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Jalapeno, Josh Allen, Rui, Tyler Watkins, Michael Buffel, Dan Root, Asak Parides, Talisman, Christopher Morgan, Randall Halsey, Robbie Nauman, Nuke Dukem, William Holbert, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Daniel Johnson, Htrons, Antonio C, Jay Getter, Assassinated Devil, Bjorn Campbell, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Jordan Gale of Fortuna, John Zeal, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Poot, Gavin Newland, Alex Lapier, Saul Balcazar, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Matt. Matt Flowers, Kinnams, Mark Kearney, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Cruxes, Chris Moore, Caswell, Anti Kinnan and Chris, Dave Alvarez, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Justin Gonzalez, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Zach Allen, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Darlene Naiman, Ryan Arkitredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, Patrick Montgomery, Simon Dunbar, Dowell Rodriguez, DB Cooper, Fat Houdini, Richter 86, Ian Bravo, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVio, Chris Morton, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Brian Chan, Organic Produce, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algarit, Dominic, Mike Menzel, Richard Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Martin Beck, Gavin, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, Jason Lusky, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Anton Kay, Alan Trembley, Tyler Bello, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershaw, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixie, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kiniston, The Rose Experience and Grizzled Veterans Media, Tyler Goodwin, William O'Carroll, Jorge Powell, Max Cannon, Phil Crone, Throw Seven, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Joey Gonholiger, Gerald Pennington, Justin Payne, Justin Wagaman, David Iacolucci, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Andrew, Keith A. Lewis, Ashley Carlson, Marius Carson-Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Purdue, Patrick Harper, Madmock Media, and Jonathan Rice.